0: is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network.
1: This is Megan Fox, and when I'm not busy devouring souls, I'm listening to the Boo Crew
2: Podcast. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hey, I'm
3: Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 294. This time around, you are joined by acclaimed journalist, film critic, and author, Frederick Blickert. At time of release, he has written an incredible new book called Extra Salty that celebrates Diablo Cody and Karin Kusama's iconic 2009 film, Jennifer's body. Take a deep dive into the hallways of Devil's Kettle High through Frederick's well researched love letter to the film, its creation, its importance, and its triumphant resurgence and rediscovery. The book features new interviews with the director and more, and we cannot recommend it enough. So don't be lime green jelly, you're invited to the prom too. It's episode 294 and it starts right now.
2: You and me are going out tonight. Wear something cute, okay?
3: You always do what Jennifer tells you to do.
2: It's just that I like the same things that she likes.
1: Hey, Jennifer. You look really pretty. Why don't you just come by my place? what is this random. This isn't really your house, is it? We can play mommy and daddy.
0: No way.
1: We always share your bed when we have slumber parties. Jennifer's evil. I know. No, I mean, she's actually evil, not high school evil. Really cute to me lately. How, How is he tasting he- these days?
2: You are never a good friend. You could have anybody that you want. I chip.
0: <laughs> You're killing people. You no, know, I'm killing boys. Nice Thought
1: you only murdered boys. I go both ways. I will finish you if I have to. You can barely finish gym class.
2: Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a... Crew Autopsy.
3: All right, so joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio is an acclaimed journalist, freelance film critic, and author. His work has appeared in Vice, Extra, Real Screen, Senses of Cinema, Paste Magazine, Gizmodo, and more. He's also senior entertainment writer at Android Authority and is a member of the Society of LGBTQ Entertainment Critics. He has written a fantastic new book called Extra Salty, available now from ECW Press. It's a wonderful exploration of Diablo Cody and Karin Kusano. Um, 2009 film jennifer's body a movie that was considered a failure when released underperforming at the box office generated mostly negative reviews leaving the studio wondering what went wrong then something really interesting happened some 10 years later jennifer's body has not only been rediscovered and remembered but revered as a feminist classic and a hallmark of queer horror Featuring, among many other things, an original interview with the director, Extra Salty is an inquisitive celebration and analysis of this incredible movie and the stories behind it. We are honored to welcome its writer, Frederick Blickert
2: yeah yeah
3: thank you so much for having me well dude thank you so much for spending some time to speak with us and for writing this marvelous book we as i was saying before we started we devoured it cover to cover in one sitting (laughs) it is so fun so take us back tell us about the very first time you saw jennifer's body
4: yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, like a lot of people, I sadly skipped it when it was in theaters. Um, you know, I kind of read those negative reviews, got a vague sense that it wasn't a very good movie. And so I just kind of passed on it. And, you know, months later, when I was out on DVD, uh, I thought I'd give it a try. Kind of lower stakes at that stage. I just kind of rented a copy of it. And I mean, right away, it was kind of a weird surprise. I thought I was in for just kind of a you know b-level kind of shitty movie that might be fun it might kind of pass the time for a couple hours and it was so much more than that it was it was really compelling i kind of stuck with me for years after i'd kind of revisit it and um yeah i mean it it, it, it kind of it's a movie that really sticks with you i think it, it's hard to get it out of your head once you've watched it and and that was my initial experience of it was kind of was smarter than i thought it would be it was funnier than i thought it would be it was scarier it was it was kind of everything i wanted
3: in in a in a teen horror movie. You know, it's so funny that I think that our exact experience with that film as well. Yeah. The same thing. We didn't go see it in the theater, just kind of brushed by us with the negative reviews and things of that nature. And I remember the first time we saw it and it was a DVD rental in 2010. And that scene after the fire at melody lane, when Jennifer gets into the van, we drop that storyline and then we follow needy home. eventually where she discovers jennifer in the middle of the night in her kitchen looking absolutely destroyed with no context of what happened to her except our own imagination as she left with that band Low, low shoulder that was among the most terrifying things we've ever seen on screen that one just hit us in the gut and then of course she barfs up all that that black tar what were some of the things about jennifer's body in particular that stuck out to you the most specific scenes or elements that really seared themselves into your brain
4: I, I mean i'm totally with you that i think the structure of the film and having that kind of that fairly long stretch of uncertainty where jennifer comes back changed uh after whatever happened in that van you kind of you kind of have this this creeping sense of something throughout the film where, you know, on some level, you know, what happened, it's not that big of a mystery when it, when it's finally revealed, when you see what low shoulder did to her in that forest, that kind of violation later on, it's like, yeah, we knew that, that was what was happening, but that, that kind of sense of foreboding of like, when are we going to really get that confirmed? I think that that really sticks with you. And, and the attack scene itself, I think is such a smart scene. It's such, it's such a devastating scene. Um, you know, it, it's, it, when I interviewed Karin Kusama about it, uh, she she talked about the way the folks who worked on the film just kind of as shorthand referred to that as the rape scene, which, which is how it plays really that, that it's, it's kind of very intentionally shot to feel that way. And, you know, to, to sort of save that for the end, there there's, On the one hand, it's horrifying, it's disturbing. And on the other, uh, you get this real sense of catharsis of like, okay, that is what happened. I knew, I knew something was wrong. I knew something like that had happened. And now I'm being told, yeah, yeah. All of your, all of your kind of fears, those were right. You were right to have these kind of weird feelings about low shoulder. It wasn't, it it wasn't, uh, that wasn't all in your head. So, so that kind of, that kind of element of the film, I thought was, was really, really powerful. Another scene that stands out is the moment when we kind of realize that uh, Needy and Jennifer have this kind of romantic link between each other. Um, there are kind of hints to it throughout the film. They're they're not they're not all that subtle, but at some point you kind of get this moment where they kiss, uh, and and it kind of again confirms these feelings of of like oh yeah no this isn't the, you know on the one hand this is a friendship but on the other it's it's a lot more than that as well and the bond between the two of them that has been kind of broken by Jennifer becoming not necessarily becoming a demon, but being taken over by a demon that becomes so much more compelling when you realize just how close they were um, and, and how much that's being threatened at this point. Uh, So that those were some of the scenes that really stuck with me when I, when I first saw the film and that's only gotten more so over the years. uh, Every time I revisit it.
1: The thing that really stuck, drew me into jennifer's body was the writing and the comedy and being you know i was a teenage girl once and and it is fucking horrible it is so hard to be a teenage girl and you're constantly judged and you know now we have a teenage girl which is so crazy to think i mean she's going to be 13 and on valentine's day but just seeing what she's going through And just that generation is just so different than what it was when I was growing up. But that really drew me in being able to relate and go back and think, oh, my gosh, being a teenage girl was so hard. And, you know, the people in the school, there were characters that were like that in my school. And just the writing was so quick and smart. Is there a line that you just love that just sticks with you from that film? Because, I mean, I have a ton, but... I want to hear yours.
4: Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, uh, hearing you say that, the first thing that pops into my mind is uh, "Hell is a teenage girl." Yeah. yeah, like the the first line of the film, right? You you kind of get cued into what the film is right. going to be about. You know, all the ways that that was ignored about the film. Uh, you know, it, it's the first thing that, that Diablo Cody wrote into the script is is that Hell is a teenage girl. God, there are so many great lines in it. Uh, I love the quippy stuff. You know, I I know I know that people have kind of come back around on Diablo Cody's writing and I'm, I'm really happy about that because some of that stuff is just so funny and, and just sticks with you. And I find myself quoting little bits of it. I, I love, I love referring to someone who's jealous as lime green jello.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah <I laughs> we we do it all the time yeah. still.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I,
4: I also find myself often, uh, 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 saying, uh, that something is true. It's on the Wikipedia but there's, you know, some of, the, some of the really kind of heart-wrenching stuff about being a teen, teen girl really really also sticks with me. I, at one point, I played with the idea of, of calling the book I'm Still Socially Relevant, which, which ended up being, you know, too long for a book title, but it's one of my favorite lines in the film. It really kind of captures uh, the, the sort of social hierarchies of teenagers and teenage girls specifically, you know, that, that confrontation at the end between Jennifer and Needy where... Needy is just kind of for the for the first time we're seeing Needy get kind of really vicious with Jennifer and like pick at all of her insecurities uh, about about how she's kind of had to stay skinny by taking laxatives about how, yeah, she was the snowflake queen, but that was like a year ago. So how are you relevant now? Um, there's there's just that like kind of devastating sense that like their teenage lives are coming to an end and and those kind of those kinds of feelings of power you have for a moment when you're young, it's like, uh, that, that might not last just heads up. Uh, and I, I love that moment.
3: Yeah. And that moment also addresses a lot of real pressures that young girls feel, which was, which was wild to see in that perspective.
4: Yeah, absolutely. It gets, you know, there, there are moments in the film where it, it feels like it's being really light and fun and, and, and not, not trying to dig too deep. And then it just kind of like, cuts you with these moments that that really dig deep like that yeah
3: the soundtrack also it can't be ignored it's an amazing testament to the myspace era it it, dashboard confessional Haley williams silver sun pickups panic at the disco hole the list goes on and then at the centerpiece we have this song by this fictional band low shoulder through the trees and the singer Nikolai, played by adam brody unforgettable benchmark in the film it's also a hell of an earworm what's the interesting story uh, kind of about the creation of the song and some of the things low shoulder represents in the film
4: yeah i mean they got they got a now i'm i'm gonna forget the name of the actual band because they've they've changed their name a couple times but they got an actual band to write that um for the movie and and i love that they did that so often uh you get these kind of fake movie songs that you're like, OK, yeah, I, I guess that sort of sounds like a cool song for teenagers, but it's not really working. And through the trees, uh, you know, you can't find it anywhere, sadly, because I, I wish I could add it to like a Spotify playlist. And it's not on there because it it totally captures that kind of that kind of like unrequited love that you had in those sort of indie songs from the from the 2000s. And you mentioned uh, uh adam brody playing the main the, the the front man of the band and he was such a perfect choice for that it was such a it was such a, like culmination of of the the kind of teen heartthrob career he had had at that point because he he was so well known for being like the nice guy uh mostly from the oc but he kind of played the same character in gilmore girls too where he's like In Gilmore Girls, he's a musician. And then in The O.C., he's like the the big music fan who's who's like educating all of his friends about the cool music they should be listening to. And, you know, he's also kind of a condescending prick in those in those roles in some ways. You know, we've kind of moved away from that that like nice guy teen TV show character trope. Um, So to have him kind of go from that into into the low shoulder character, um, who is actually this, this like really heartless monster. Who's, you know, it, like there, there isn't even really anything redeemable about him. It's not like, Oh, he wants fame, but he feels bad that he has to do this sir. her. It's like, he's like laughing and joking and, and, and totally doesn't even recognize Jennifer's humanity for even a second. And it's such a, it's such a clever twist on, on that whole kind of era of like a a a type of non-threatening masculinity that was being sort of
3: written into pop culture I think Sure sure yeah and the fact that d- during the assault obviously he doesn't even doesn't even take the time he doesn't even remember her name he calls her by you know an incorrect name for a second there right
4: Yeah god I love that moment What's your name again Tiffany it's like all of the dehumanization of Jennifer is just totally distilled into that moment that's like oh yeah he doesn't see a person in front of him
3: We love this line from the book, Jennifer's Body is an Emotionally Satisfying Look at Female Friendship, Queer Love, and Gendered Violence, all wrapped up in a package that's infused with horror history. Talk a bit about the impact of everything that's baked into this movie somehow becoming more recognized and appreciated over the years like some time-release medication.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's... In so many ways, it it feels like it shouldn't be such a radical movie. Like, there, there's so much about what it's doing that feels like it, these are people, who, uh, you know, Diablo Cody and, and Karnakusama are people who have... You, when you read interviews with them and when you watch the film itself, you recognize that they grew up with the same horror films the rest of us did and they know them inside and out and they know all the rules of the genre and they kind of know what makes us tick as fans. And, and so they they totally play by those rules and then also subvert them a little bit. You know, you have needy as this kind of final girl type character who you think you understand right away. Oh yeah. She's kind of the bookish nerd who's friends with the hot girl. But the the more you kind of get into it, it's like she's you know, she, she's just as into going out. She's, she's got this boyfriend who she's sexually active with. Uh, she's, she's like a very regular teen in so many ways where, where, you know, you, you get these sort of these sort of very gendered horror movie tropes that are presented to you at the outset. And then as the film goes on, it's just slowly kind of chipping away at them and saying, actually, you know, we can actually make these real characters too, at the same time in a way that I find totally satisfying in the film Uh, and so I think it works perfectly well on the surface as, as just any other horror film, but then the way in which it kind of has swung back, I find fascinating because it was dismissed, not really on its own terms. It wasn't like critics watched it and, and, uh, and just thought it failed at what it was doing. It was like, they didn't even engage with what it was doing. Um, I mean, I I don't want to overstate that a lot of critics did like it. I I, I don't want to pretend that it was like quite as, quite as, uh, uh, quite as universally loathed as, as, as we might think it was, but, but in a lot of cases, you know, it's fascinating reading these reviews that, that don't even engage with, uh, the ways in which it's a queer film that don't even engage, uh, with the, with, uh, the attack scene at at all. It's kind of like, it's kind of like Jennifer just kind of magically became a demon and, and that's that. It's like, but but then, what does the rest of the movie mean without that scene? That scene is so powerful, and it it just kind of gives meaning to what Jennifer's particular trauma is in this film, uh, and 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 why that's meaningful. And so, if you kind of gloss over that, it's like uh, you you, you've just totally missed the point.
3: So I I found that kind of fascinating in in revisiting the film. Why do you think it was glossed over? Why do you think? I mean, obviously during that time, that's when. People like Harvey Weinstein and you know all this, these the things that became the Me Too movement. That stuff was actually happening during that time, where people were intimidated not to speak up. It's just interesting to me that at that time also it was all those themes, those very themes, that were intimidating people that were the things that were overlooked right in front of our faces in this movie. What do you think was going on at that time? Do you think is, is that the spirit of what was kind of keeping everybody repressed to really be open about acknowledging it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting question because uh, I, I think that must be part of it. I
4: think where it becomes tricky to, to, to really kind of pinpoint what went wrong is just in how direct Jennifer's body is. It's like, this stuff isn't subtext. It's like right there. It's, it's being stated so plainly that it's, it's, it's difficult to imagine what that mindset was, but, but I think that's definitely part of it. And I think, uh, you know, the, the elephant in the room is uh, is Megan Fox and the way she was being treated just generally by the media. You know, she, she was kind of, she rose to fame with the, with the Transformers movies and became this kind of icon and then immediately we kind of had to turn on her. Right. She must be untalented. She must be stupid. She must be difficult to work with all things that don't really seem to be true at all. Um, you know, when you, when you look at the old, old interviews with her, when you watch her performances, it's like this is somebody who was seemingly very professional, very talented, very smart. Um, but we kind of needed to knock her down a peg. And I, I wonder if that's primarily what was going on. Um, you can't imagine that this film would have any depth. You can't imagine that it, that it would be dealing with any serious issues because why would Megan Fox be in it? Um, and, and similarly, there was the, the backlash against Diablo Cody where it was like this kind of uh, punk rock feminist, former stripper writes her first film and wins an Oscar. There must be something fishy going on here. Um, and so we have to turn on her and assume that, that she must be less talented than, than it at first appeared. Uh, which is all, I think, tied into to what you're talking about with the with the rise of the Me Too movement and 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 the mistreatment of women in the industry. I think, uh, I, I think it, it's difficult to separate those two ideas, uh, at least in my mind. The Boo Crew will be right back.
1: Hi, I'm actress Megan Fox. Every year, thousands of kids enter our high school succumbing to terrible peer pressure. Let's face it, high school can be tough, and kids can be cruel. Picking on others for just being different. Well, I say fuck them, because they don't know shit. What really matters is being yourself, and if that includes slowly killing, then eating every boy at your school, well then I say do it, because nothing is more important than just being who you are.
0: Karen Kusama, Diablo Cody, and Megan Fox evolved discussed in interviews, and uh, it's mentioned in your book as well, how this movie was marketed to boys instead of girls by sexualizing Megan Fox on the marketing materials, posters, and even the cut of the trailers. I was you know, really curious if, in recent years, w- you know, was that marketing team at Fox ever tracked down or interviewed about their decisions they made about promoting this film? I mean, I know they're now part of Disney, and you know, people probably lost their jobs and stuff, but... Has anybody ever, you know, tracked these people down? Yeah, it's weird. I, I haven't seen anybody named.
4: Um, I, I, don't, yeah, I don't know specifically who would be to blame. What, one of the things that was really frustrating uh, in, in kind of researching this stuff was the, the way in which these large companies love to kind of branch out into smaller companies. And so you had like Fox that was putting out these Fox Atomic movies. And so they had their own marketing team. And then at some point they decided, well, we can't really have all these resources going to an imprint of Fox. Really, we should just wrap this up into 20th Century Fox. And it's like, okay, so wait, who was in charge of the marketing when it was at Fox Atomic? Did that then change hands? Was it then handed off to people who hadn't been working with the film earlier on? It's like it's so hard to pinpoint exactly where Fox kind of lost the narrative on that. Um, but it, yeah, it, I, I would be fascinated to hear, you know, a, an oral history of how they
3: decided to, how they decided to market it that way. Cause it's so bizarre. Like, Oh yeah. Talk about some of the bizarre ideas actually that were being yeah. floated around at the time too. Yeah. The,
4: the, the wildest one was this notion of having, uh, let me see if I'm, I can remember the, the details of this, right. It was the, the studio wanted Megan Fox to host some kind of like amateur porn website evening um which you know kran kusama and, and diablo Cody kind of shut down right away for for so many obvious reasons but you like just thinking about the mindset that would make somebody do that it's like what what does porn have to do with jennifer's body what does <laughs> like right. at what point the does, like even if you're just trying to market it on on the merits of like the the hotness of, of megan fox like what exactly narratively is the tie in there? Um, there aren't any sex workers of any kind in the film. As far as I know uh, there's like, it seems kind of disrespectful to the people who made the film, but also to whatever porn stars you're hiring to do this. It's like, what's what, what's their side of this uh, c- coming into this weird cross cross promotional thing.
3: And it's, a, it's about teens, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> God. Oh
2: God. Well, uh, that's, no
3: that said, it's even more disturbing that, As Leo was talking about, the very scene that opens the trailer of Jennifer coming out of the lake naked is a scene that was captured and leaked by paparazzi at the time, leaving Megan Fox completely devastated and understandably violated to the point of having a breakdown. And that's the first thing we see in the trailer. It's very odd to know that that backstory, it kind of coexists with that yeah
4: absolutely and then you know once they released it on dvd they they had two versions of jennifer's body and one was this sort of scintillating unrated version where you know there's no nudity in it but you can tell they're kind of trying to capitalize on that right. even even at that point this marketing didn't work for it in theaters but let's try again with the DVD just
3: in case right um well what as uh, spe- uh, speaking on that what role do you think eventually right that now today that all of the misunderstanding and disregard for the themes in the film as far as the way it was marketed now serves in the narrative of the very things Jennifer's body sort of sought out to ignite in the first place
4: yeah, I mean, it's uh, uh, on the one hand, that's that's like kind of tragic, but but you're totally right uh, in in turning it into a cult film. It's like it was the film itself was so actively a victim of the things that it was thematically trying to 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 explore in a way that I think like that. That's like uh, what better, what better, you know, making of a cult film story could you possibly imagine? It's it's not even that the film is just countercultural, it's that it's it, it was internally kind of fighting with these forces uh from day one in a way that that makes it feel like it's it's reappraisal and and it's kind of reclamation as a cult classic just feels like such a huge victory uh that, that's so fitting you know there, there's no kind of there's no kind of like uh oh it's failing so much that it's funny or you, you know it's it's there's none of that kind of uh, cult experience it's really just completely the same narrative as it was from day one and and because the world has kind of changed we're able to embrace that it was fighting against the current the whole time yeah
1: here at the boo crew we love screen use props it's no secret (laughs) and we like to collect them and we have some stuff from jennifer's body which is like our prized possession and you can talk about What I got you for Christmas last year. What did I get you?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Lauren tracked me down um, the original... Puppet uh, mechanism that uh, Was part of the effect of having Megan Fox stretch open Her demon mouth for the scenes When she would actually attack uh, Her victims so So, so yeah That that survived somehow so yeah Lauren had tracked that down and surprised Surprised me with it for Christmas last year Actually she cried yeah I did I was Bawling I was in tears Is there anything from is there an item from that movie That you would you would think would kind Of represent the entire movie if you were to have Some in your collection
4: Oh man. Uh, I would love to know what happened to those BFF necklaces. That Yes. Oh my (laughs) God. Right.
1: (laughs) I know. I know.
4: The the beautiful moment when they're, when they're fighting, when they're hovering over, over Jennifer's bed. Uh, I love the image that Jennifer kind of gives up the moment that needy rips that thing off of
1: her. It's like
4: all of these things have happened, but the thing that makes her kind of realize that, that she's, she's at the end of her journey is that like, she's lost this friendship. She's this, the most important relationship in her life has just ended. And it's all just kind of captured in that one little like teenage necklace. And I love that so much.
3: Oh yeah.
1: I think they probably like
3: threw a lot of that stuff. out. That's Sadly. what I'm wondering. Yeah. In our search for things. Yeah. It's one of the kind of from the time when they just used to scrap everything from the end of course, of, you know, from this movie too you know what was going on at the time in the studio's perception it was probably all just
1: (laughs) yeah they're like this is trash exactly whatever exactly
4: yeah i'm looking for this we can just junk it right exactly
1: (laughs) i would i would love the sweater with the hearts like that i feel like is so iconic with the pink heart earrings yeah and the jeans like i would love that costume i mean we have the um cheerleader yeah we've got a
3: couple of the costumes we managed to find a couple of the costumes what's really interesting to me though is nowadays and we'll talk about this in a second you could actually i mean there's stores everywhere her her pink velour hoodie with the hearts they're selling out at stores everywhere today Yeah, teens
4: on TikTok are all over that.
1: (laughs) It's fascinating. originally, it was like a Gap, a kid's, right? Yeah, it was a kid's kid's size Gap gap, hoodie. Yeah, Which is crazy that she could fit into a kid's Gap. Yeah, (laughs) totally.
4: And and it wasn't meant to be a crop top hoodie. It was just like, (laughs) that's what it came into when they put it on Megan Fox.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the costuming (laughs) was so incredible.
3: Yeah, no, definitely. We'll we'll talk a bit more about that in a bit too, but I wanted to know... Tell the listener about your time just doing the original interviews that appear in the book, who you got a chance to talk to. And in those moments, what vibe did you get about their feelings for the film? Is it something that is difficult for them to talk about in a bittersweet way? Are they sick of talking about it? Because you hear of some filmmakers who are like, oh, great. Now you want to talk about the movie. Fuck you. See you later. You know what I mean? There, there are people who are like that. What were the people you talked to? What was their vibe? And who did you talk to?
4: Yeah, I mean, t- two of the big ones are, are definitely Karen Kusama, who who um, you know directed the film, and from what I can tell, has been proud of it from day one. You know, and and she's somebody who had to really fight with with studio people on her film beforehand when she made Eon Flux, which uh, you know by all accounts was a total train wreck uh, and was was basically taken from her and, and edited into kind of junk. So yeah, you know, she seems to have kind of. Disowned that one, but with Jennifer's body, I think partly thanks to uh, Diablo Cody, there was a huge amount of creative control that kind of stayed with the two of them. Uh, and so, thankfully, uh, the film didn't fail because it was hacked up and turned into junk by the studio. It it failed because it was poorly marketed. But the film itself, you know, we we actually got the the good original intent uh, of these two filmmakers. Um, and so she yeah, she she loves it. She was obviously upset by by its its reception, um, but kind of stood by it from from day one and is, is happy to see it kind of reclaim the way it has been. I know that some of the reviews, you know, when, when I spoke to her about about the way it was reviewed, the 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 one that really seemed to stand out for her was the notion that she had adopted the male gaze the kind of the, the insulting nature of something like, like telling a, a, a woman that she's adopting the male gaze, I think was, was one that really stung and, you know, very, very understandably. So, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, from what I can tell, it, it has never been a film that she was in any way kind of convinced actually sucked or anything. It was, it was a film that she was proud of and that, that came out the way she wanted it to. Um, Someone else I spoke to, uh, Colin Geddes, was the, the, the person who, who programmed Jennifer's Body as part of the Toronto International Film Festival, uh, Midnight Madness, where it had its, its world premiere. And similarly, you know, it, it was interesting talking to him and, and not at all getting the sense that it was like, oh, I made, I made a bad call with that one. And audience didn't respond. It was like, he saw it, thought it was great, programmed it. And, and the first audiences that saw it at the festival loved it. Um it, it, you know, you can you can find clips on YouTube of the Q and A After, and it's a packed house. It's like they, they played this movie at midnight. So it's like 2 am and and this sold out theater is just like people screaming and, and applauding. and it's it's like that kind of festival energy was in no way dampened by the film. They loved it. Um, so all of that stuff kind of happened afterwards. but it, it's it's very cool getting to hear somebody, who, who got to sort of discover this film before any of that stuff happened before any of the, any of the backlash or, or any of the reception, uh, who was still kind of, you know, maybe this is the sad part of it is still kind of hopeful for it. Um, there's, there's still kind of this energy of like, Oh yeah, we found a hit. And then, you know, within a month, it's like, Oh no, this, this didn't work out.
3: As we approach the film's 10th anniversary in 2019, the film did something extraordinary and something I don't think we've ever seen happen with any other movie in our lifetime. It began to be openly hailed as a masterpiece and entertainment tonight hosted that terrific moment of Megan Fox and Diablo interviewing each other. There were anniversary screenings. I think the honestly the very first time that I saw sort of public Appreciation for the film was with your article that you did in Vice in 2018. Yeah, Yeah, Jennifer's body would kill if it came out today.
4: Oh, that's cool to hear.
3: (laughs) What? And then, as we were saying, all these stores are popping online selling Jennifer Check hoodies and uh, merchandise, and that they do have recreations of the BFF necklace that you can get now on Etsy and things like that. So, what do you think changed?
4: I mean, I think we changed. I think as a society, you know, we we just. when when you hear them talk about the film and and how it was received and how it was kind of reappraised, there is this kind of sense of like, well, it was always a feminist film. It's not like it became a feminist film in the rereading of it or in the recontextualizing of it. It was always kind of making these arguments. And so I think, you know, when, when I first revisited it for, for Vice, it was a film that had been on my mind. Like I said, for the, well, it wasn't quite 10 years at that point, but for the, for the years, since it had come out, it it was on my mind. And, And as the me too movement was kind of taking off and as, as we were as a, as a, as a society kind of coming to terms with the treatment of certain people in the industry, um, Megan Fox was one of the first people who came into my mind and Jennifer's body was one of the first films that came into my mind. And so that was kind of what got me thinking about it and thinking, you know, there, there was the new Halloween film that year that had just come out. There was the new remake of black Christmas, these kind of uh, these films that were openly being discussed as quote unquote me too films and they were kind of grappling with the same questions as jennifer's body and they were being recognized as grappling with those questions uh in in the current moment in the in the kind of in this in this sort of cultural revolution that was taking place and so that was, you know, when, when I wrote that, that headline that it would kill if it came out today, I meant that very literally. It was like, this is a movie that would absolutely be hailed as a me too movement if it came out now. And it, it's just that these are always issues that have been, that have been kind of important and Diablo Cody and Carton Cousin were just kind of willing to say that out loud back then. and And it just kind of fell on deaf ears.
3: That said, with all this discussion and, and, and things that have kind of come up with the rediscovery of this film. As far as you're concerned, where does the legacy of the film go from here? I mean, Megan Fox has talked about the willingness to do something with it. She'd love there to be a TV show. What do you hope will come out of it? And what do you hope will not come out of it? Oh, that second part. I love that.
4: Um, well, I'll, I'll start with you know, the, the rumors of a TV show. I know that you know from, from day one, uh, Diablo Cody talked about potentially turning it into a TV show one day. And I think that would be really cool. And we're, we're definitely in the, in the, you know, this moment of legacy sequels and, and reunion seasons of things and, or remakes, you know, like ginger snaps is being turned into a, a TV show, uh, which has a lot in common with Jennifer's body. I think if, if that works with ginger snaps, there's no reason it wouldn't with, with Jennifer's body. What I think I hope even more than, than, a direct continuation of Jennifer's body is just more of a willingness to, to make these movies moving forward. I would love to think that if Jennifer's body did come out today, uh, the studios would know what to do with it. Um, that might be naive. Who knows? Maybe they'd make the same mistakes all over again, but, but I hope that that's one of the big lessons is that, is that you, you kind of need to market these films to the people they're meant for. And in the way that they're, that they're meant to be consumed because that, that, that really was such a big part of its failure was, was that kind of, kind of ignoring what the intentions of the filmmakers were in, in a totally predictable way because, because they thought it was going to appeal to teen girls. And, and they, that's, that's such a segment of the population that's been ignored for so long that maybe that wouldn't happen now. Maybe, you know, we, we've, we've kind of turned a page on how we talk about Britney Spears. We've, we've turned a page on, uh, you know the history of the Beatles. They they became big because teen girls loved them way before you know uh, these kind of the, the 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 boomer men who we who we know as their biggest fans uh, kind of got on board. So hopefully there would be that kind of that sense that that the the teen girl fandom is actually worth uh, worth reaching out to and and kind of respecting uh kind of kind of understanding that that's that's a that's a demographic that that has real value culturally not not just because they'll pay money to see your movie but that that, that's like a cultural force that you totally want to get on board with
3: and then on the other hand what do you hope will not happen
4: um man that's a really good question what do i hope will not happen with the i mean i hope that the legacy won't die down i hope You know, and and this is true of the the Me Too movement more broadly, which has kind of gotten quieter as as time goes on. I I hope that that energy kind of kind of keeps up. I hope that we don't just decide that that the 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 shift in thinking on Jennifer's body was just kind of a flash in the pan, and and you know was just a way to capitalize on on uh, something that people were talking about for for a couple of years and then we just kind of go back to normal uh, mm. I think that would be really unfortunate
3: yeah I was gonna ask it like is there a way do you think to i mean in the world of remakes and everything is there a way to remake or revisit this film in a way that would still come off as sincere and not capitalizing on the very things that are the reasons now we're revisiting it yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the big fear. When I, when
4: I say, I, I hope that that we'll have learned the lessons to make new films that mm. are received properly. Uh, I think that would be, that would be a great way forward. I, I think if the creators of the original can come back mm. uh, and, and have, have a say in how this goes forward, I think that would go a long way just in just in terms of kind of getting some good faith. You know, if, if Fox just decides, Hey, this is big, let's, let's make some cash off of it. That would be a huge red flag uh, if they kind of went with that alone, but if it was kind of driven by someone like Diablo Cody, who, who, you know, her whole, her whole career changed directions after Jennifer's body. She has said, if that movie had done well, I probably would have made more movies like that. Um, so the fact that she, would have liked to make more horror movies to me is, is uh really kind of an exciting thought. Like, does this mean we're going to get some Diablo Cody horror movies? Cause I would love that.
3: Yeah, that would be incredible. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's a, she's a damn genius. And yeah, to see her in this genre, just flourish some more it would just be so fun to watch so yeah, awesome. yeah and karen kusama obviously my god you know i don't know if you've seen uh what she directed the first episode of a new show called yellow jackets that just premiered a few so weeks ago oh so, god it's so good like oh, karen <laughs> kusama when she does horror and the, the invitation yeah oh my god yeah. so such good stuff
4: and like when i found out she's she's making a dracula film right. for someone like holy shit (laughs) that's gonna be
3: so great yeah yeah it's uh, yeah one of the things i'm most looking forward to in this life i think right now (laughs) is that that movie i'm curious so you're up in the vancouver area have you ever thought or or maybe you've done this have you gone and seeked out all of the uh, filming locations and things i know jennifer's body was all made in vancouver in your backyard up there
4: I've, i've really wanted to um there's I mean, the school where it takes place is not too far from here. So I've been wanting to check that out. And the lake where she kind of, you know, r- rinses off after after killing Jonas uh, is another place I'd love to go check out. I've been trying to figure out, and I can't find this online anywhere, and I've, I've been looking for it so much, but there's a park where Needy and Chip meet up a couple of times. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's on 16th Avenue in Vancouver, like a block away from where I used to live. Oh, no way! Uh, I've gone back a bunch of times. I've looked at it. I've compared it to, you know, they're, they're only there at night. So it's really hard to figure it out. But I, I think that's where they shot that
3: scene. So
2: that's plaque, plaque there.
3: Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, Frederick, again, man, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us and for this amazing deep dive into one of our favorite films of all time. Oh, thank you. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. So you can tell everybody where they can pick up their copy of Extra Salty.
4: Yeah, totally. So it's from ECW Press. You can find it pretty much at most booksellers online. If you want to, you know, let your favorite local bookstores know that you want a copy, they can order it for you. Uh, it's, but you know, it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. You can you can get it from Walmart. Pretty much, pretty much any online bookseller will have it. So uh, that's extra salty, Jennifer's body.
0: Oh, looking back to the very opening of your book, where you ask some very fascinating questions, like, can art truly be produced before its time? and waiting for us all, you know, to catch up now, you know, now that we live in the social media age with armchair critics and influencers who, you know, will easily overshadow anything Roger Ebert, you know, those guys, type of guys, you know, will ever say, uh, will the fate of say the next Jennifer's body type of horror film be at risk of succeeding?
4: It, I, that's such a good question because I, I think about this all the time and the degree to which movies are getting kind of, reassessed so quickly now uh like it's so hard to keep up with you get movies that are like a year or two old and it's like this is a misunderstood classic uh and and there's something really exciting about that in the sense that it's like you know we, we don't necessarily have to wait 10 years anymore with with people thinking that they made a movie that everybody hates we, we're all kind of you know the 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 people who spent those ten years absolutely loving Jennifer's body and having no real outlet for it can can talk about it, can share photos of their fan art, uh, can can share their Halloween costumes on Twitter and and go viral so quickly. So I think that that window is getting smaller and smaller and and there's something kind of exciting on the one hand as a fan, there's something a little bit scary as a journalist where I don't know how to keep track with any of this. (laughs) Um, it's, it's like, it's moving way faster than, than I ever could. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to know what the next batch of kind of misunderstood classics that we all agree, uh, should have gotten more attention. Like what are those movies going to be and how old are they going to be? Um, I, I, I think that's, yeah, that's an amazing question. I, I, can't even begin to
3: answer it <laughs> that's awesome dude well yeah. said though man well said yes all right we man. gotta like we gotta get karen kusama and we all gotta take a pilgrimage to vancouver hook up with frederick and we gotta go explore uh doing the jennifer's body scavenger hunt and go to every single location <laughs> <I>
1: got- <laughs> sounds amazing <laughs> sounds amazing yeah sure can yeah. Karn's- totally
3: down
1: waiting for us
3: that was the Boo crew podcast episode 294 special thanks to our guest frederick blickert follow him at F.A. Blickert on Instagram and Twitter. That's B-L-I-C-H-E-R-T. This new book, Extra Salty, is available everywhere you get books online or at a bookstore near you. Production tracks for this one provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, this is Trev for the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams.
2: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at Crew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us